Let us turn together in the Holy Scriptures to Psalm 25. We will read the entire psalm. This is the word of the Lord. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord, teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek he will guide in judgment, and the meek he will teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thee unto me, and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Thus far we read. On the basis of this psalm and the entirety of the Holy Scriptures, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21, question and answer 56, which can be found on page 12 in the back of the Psalter. In question 56, the catechism asks, What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may 
never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism is explaining to us the chief articles of the Christian faith as they are summarized in the Apostles' Creed. And for several Sundays now, we have been working through the Apostles' Creed, one article at a time. And now we come to an article which is so very dear to the believing heart. That's not to say that the articles before this were not. Indeed, they are. But this article is so very personal and touches upon such a great need that we have. Indeed, the greatest need that we have. The forgiveness of sins. The reality of our human condition is that we are all fallen sons and daughters of Adam. We are guilty of Adam's original sin. More than that, we have inherited from Father Adam a corrupt human nature. And from that corrupt human nature springs the multitude of our actual sins committed day by day. And every single sin is an offense against the most high majesty of God. The seriousness of which can be grasped when we consider how glorious God is and how worthy He is of all our devotion and obedience. A single sin is an infinite offense against the most high majesty of God and as such rightly deserves the penalty of eternal death. Such is our miserable human condition by nature. And it is a condition out of which we cannot rescue ourselves. The good tidings of great joy, the good news that is the gospel, the good news that is the heart of the message of the scriptures, is that God of pure grace and mercy forgives the sins of his chosen people whose sins he covers in the blood of Jesus Christ. So that with confidence and with joy, the Christian confesses, I believe the forgiveness of sins. And when we confess that article of the Apostles' Creed, we are not just saying that there is such a thing as the forgiveness of sins for some people out there, but we are making a personal confession. I know the forgiveness of sins personally. The forgiveness of sins brought to me through the work of Christ, applied to me by His Spirit. The forgiveness of sins, which is the fountain of all true happiness in this life. That's the glorious subject that this question and answer of the catechism treats and that we are going to consider this morning. And so the theme of the sermon is simply the forgiveness of sins. We're going to unpack this beautiful Bible truth under three points. First, looking at what it is. What the forgiveness of sins is. Secondly, how it is obtained for us. And then finally, how it is applied to us. 
Our focus in this sermon is going to be on the theology, the biblical teaching on the forgiveness of sins. This concept is going to occur again in Lord's Day 23, which explains to us the truth of justification. And so what we want to do here in this sermon on question and answer 56 is briefly go through the biblical doctrine of the forgiveness of sins so that we have a clear understanding of it. And as we do so, we will engage in some proper polemics against errors concerning forgiveness. Because anything that threatens our clear understanding of what the Bible teaches threatens to rob us of the wonderful comfort that is ours in knowing God's gracious forgiveness of sins. What is it? What is forgiveness? God's forgiveness of our sins. Well, as the catechism does, it gathers the teaching of Scripture, all different threads of the teaching of Scripture, and brings it together for us. And here at the start of question and answer 56, the catechism gives us a nice, concise description of what the forgiveness of sins is. That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long. And the the core of that is God doesn't remember my sins. That's forgiveness. Now sometimes the Bible does speak of God remembering sins. When the Bible speaks of God remembering sins, what the Bible means is that God holds sin against the sinner. That's what it is for God to remember a sin. When God remembers a sin against someone, he views that person in light of their sin and holds them accountable for it. Requires them to suffer the penalty that his law demands for it. The ungodly and unbelieving... God remembers their sins. Forgiveness is found nowhere else but in Christ Jesus. And the ungodly and unbelieving, God holds their sins justly against them. He holds them as responsible to suffer the wages of sin, which is eternal death. Thus we read in Revelation 18 verse 5, concerning Babylon the great, for her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. God holds sin against the unbelieving sinner and will require that sinner to suffer the just penalty for sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read of God remembering the sins of his people and visiting them. For example, Jeremiah 14 verse 10. Here in Jeremiah 14 verse 10 we read this. Thus saith the Lord unto his people, thus have, or thus saith the Lord unto this people, thus have they loved to wander, they have not refrained their feet, therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Now in this case, the idea of the text is not that God turns against his chosen and redeemed people in holy wrath and consumes them. The idea is not that God takes away the salvation that he has granted to his people, 
Of course not. But the idea here is that God chastens His people when they walk impenitently in sin. Our sins grieve God even more than the sins of the unbelieving. That ought to sink into the Christian heart. Lest ever the Christian think that because I'm covered in the blood of Christ, I can sin with impunity. Or I can sin and it doesn't really matter because Christ, after all, died for my sins and I'm covered in His blood. Perish that thought. My sins grieve God more than the sins of the ungodly. Because when I sin, I sin against my Father. I sin against the God who gave His Son to the death of the cross to pay for my sins. My sins grieve my Father. There is a motive to fight against sin. The Christian says, the last thing in the world that I want to do is grieve my Father. But because we have that sinful nature against which we have to fight every day of our life, there are times that we weak sinners wander far like sheep gone astray down the path of sin. And when we do so, God our Father will chasten. He does not punish in wrath. He does not punish in destroying wrath. But like a father chastens a son, so God chastens His people. And that's the idea here in Jeremiah 14 verse 10. There were elect people of God in Judah who partook of Judah's sins. And in order to turn them from their sins, God visited their iniquities, sending the people into captivity where He chastened them with the rod of affliction and by that means worked repentance in their hearts and a turning. And then in His mercy, He brought them back. You know the history of Old Testament Israel. So, the Bible speaks of God remembering sins. But most wonderfully... The Bible says this, to every true believer in Jesus Christ, to every elect child of God, God does not remember your sins. Meaning, He does not hold them against you. When Scripture says God does not remember our sins, it doesn't mean that He forgets in the way that we human beings forget. That's impossible. God is all-knowing. It is impossible that knowledge vanish from the mind of God. It is impossible for God to be unaware of our sins. God knows everything. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15 verse 3 says. But when God remembers not our sins, it is an act of His divine will in which He puts our sins out of His mind. He does not hold them against us. He does not view us in light of those sins. He does not hold us as responsible to suffer the just penalty that our sins deserves. He releases us from our debts. And that's The forgiveness of sins. That was the need that the psalmist felt. When David by the inspiration of the Spirit wrote Psalm 25. 
we can tell that at this time in David's life, he was in a time of affliction. There are so many petitions in this psalm for help, for deliverance from enemies that persecute him, affliction, pain. But the thing that recurs throughout the psalm is David's petition, forgive my sins. It occurs three, four times in the psalm. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's the heart cry of faith of the believer as he wrestles with sin in his life. As he sees his sins of youth. Verse 6. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. David is saying, Bear in mind your mercy, O Lord, and look upon me in mercy. Have mercy upon me. Deal with me not as I deserve, but deal with me according to your loving kindness and grace. And then he goes on in verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to thy mercy thou According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. There is the believing petition for forgiveness in which is expressed the reality of what forgiveness is. That God remembers our sins no more. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Here God speaks. To his Old Testament people. Speaks to his Old Testament people who are guilty of so many terrible sins. For which they would be chastened in Babylon. But in Isaiah 43 verse 25. God himself says this. I even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake. And will not remember thy sins. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the message of the scriptures. That's the message that comes to you this morning beloved. Perhaps as we have sung Psalm 25. And read it now. The awareness of your own sin has surfaced. A sin that you fought against in this past week. A temptation you succumbed to. Or the old memory of a sin in the past. And the devil, that great opportunist, comes and says, You, you, you think you can be one of God's people? Look at you. Look at your sin. Look at what you did. Look at what you thought. You. And the gospel says, Yes, you. Because this is who your God is. He's a God of goodness, of grace, of mercy. Whose all-seeing eye sees everything that you are. He knows all of your sins. He knows them more than you do. And yet, out of pure mercy and grace, not because of anything in you, but of pure mercy and grace, He sets His love upon you. Chooses you to be His own. His child gives Jesus Christ for you 
to be the propitiation for your sins. And says to you in the gospel. I am he that blotteth out your transgressions. Those transgressions that you are thinking about now. I blot them out for my own sake. For my glory. To reveal the depths of my grace. My compassion. My kindness. My glory. I will not remember your sins. So we see that forgiveness is an act of God's pure grace. It is a sovereign act. It is a gracious act. And yet it is a righteous act. It is sovereign because God is not compelled to forgive. God doesn't owe forgiveness to anyone. And there is nothing that we can do to obligate God to forgive us. God is sovereign. He forgives not because He has to. He forgives because He is pleased to. It is an act of divine love revealing something of God's heart. What a beautiful glimpse into the heart of God it gives. A sovereign act. It is a gracious act. It's free. It's not earned by us. It can't be earned by us. It's not because we've given something to God and now He gives us forgiveness in return. God graciously bestows it, as the Catechism says, for Jesus' sake. We'll look at that more in the second point. And yet this sovereign, gracious act of forgiveness, of the non-remembrance of our sins, is a righteous act. And this is amazing. God is holy. God is righteous. And yet the holy God does not hold our sins against us. And does not compromise his own justice in doing so. Again, because Christ meets the demands of his holiness for us. God's forgiveness is full Full. The catechism emphasizes that when it says my sins in the plural, meaning all of my sins. And not just my actual sins, those thoughts, words, deeds, and desires which are contrary to God's law. But the reality of my sinful nature. God does not remember my sinful nature against me. That's the depth of our sinfulness. Sin is not purely in the act, but sin is rooted in our nature. We are sinful. And yet, God does not hold that nature against us. He forgives fully, freely, graciously, completely, sovereignly, righteously. That's the forgiveness of sins. Now, in the second half of answer 56, the catechism brings out another biblical truth that is very closely connected with the forgiveness of sins. After giving that definition of forgiveness as God not remembering our sins, there's the conjunction, but, but God will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. To impute means to reckon to someone's account. It means to credit to someone. To look at them in light of. 
God imputes the righteousness of Christ. We're not going to spend much time on this because this is a concept that is on the foreground in Lord's Day 30 or Lord's Day 23. We'll get to it in a little while. But the reason the catechism brings it up here is because the imputation of righteousness is the other side of the coin of forgiveness. These two blessings go together. Forgiveness really is the non-imputation of sin. God not holding our sin against us. But the flip side of that is that God graciously holds Jesus' righteousness to us. He does not view us in the light of the sins that we have committed, but he views us in the light of the perfect obedience that Jesus has rendered on our behalf as our mediator, as our substitute, as our Savior. God remembers not the sins of his people, but as Psalm 25 says, he remembers them in mercy. He remembers them according to his goodness. And implied there is especially this, he remembers Christ's righteousness to us. He credits it to us. Jesus saved us by being our substitute. He paid for our sins and he fulfilled the law, both on our behalf. And thus in him, and for his sake, righteousness is freely imputed to us. So that when God looks at his people, yes, he sees our sin. He sees what we are by nature, but he judges us Righteous in his sight on the basis of Christ's work. He sees us clothed in those white robes of Jesus' own spotless righteousness. And so, in summary, what a truth we confess in this article of the Apostles' Creed. I believe the forgiveness of sins. When we confess that article of the creed, when we do so in the evening service tonight, let, us not, let it not be a rote repetition of words that we know so well that they just spill from our mouths without thought. But let us confess it from the heart. This is my greatest need. My sins would otherwise drag me down into the pit of eternal perdition where I would perish everlastingly and deservingly so. But God in His grace has remembered me in His mercy and gives forgiveness so that He holds those sins not against me and takes away the punishment they deserve and in place Of the filthy rags of my sin. He clothes me in the righteousness of Christ. If there's anything in all the world. That should thrill our hearts. It's the truth of the forgiveness of sin. If there's anything in all the world. To devote some of our brain space to. Some of our time to. It should be the contemplation of this wonder of the gospel. The searching of the scriptures. Diving into the depths of what God has done for us. Here is where happiness. Here is where joy. Here is where peace is found. It's not found in earthly things. It's not found in earthly pleasures. It's not found in amassing riches. It's not found in anything else. It's found here in knowing this. And resting in this. 
forgiveness of sins. God does not remember my sins against me. But I am righteous in Christ. Therefore an heir to eternal life. And in all the miseries of this life. In walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I am fixed upon a rock that cannot be moved. My sins are forgiven. By the living God. That's what it is. Now, how is it obtained for us? How do we get forgiven forgiveness? How can it be that such a blessing comes your way and comes my way? The catechism puts the reason or the way that forgiveness comes to us right at the beginning of answer 56. That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins. We got into this a little bit because you can't avoid talking about the place of Christ when defining what forgiveness is. But now we're going to focus our attention on it. Here is how forgiveness is obtained for you, believing people of God. One way, no better. One person, God the Son in our flesh, Jesus Christ, and His work for you. Christ alone obtains forgiveness, and He obtains it for us. By his satisfaction. Forgiveness would forever be out of reach. If it were up to us to obtain it for ourselves. The perfect justice and righteousness of God. Would forever stand as an impenetrable wall. Between us. The Holy One cannot act contrary to his own nature. God cannot negate his own law, which means he cannot just bypass, overlook, or wink at sin. That would be a travesty of justice. We all would admit that on a human level. If a bank robber is arrested and he's brought before the judge and the judge simply says, well, you know, I don't feel like sentencing him. I know what the law says, but we're just going to ignore what the law says and this man's going to go free. No one would say, wow, what a beautiful act of forgiveness. Everyone would say, a travesty of justice. Well, the same logic applies to our sin against God, but to an even greater degree, every sin is an offense against the most high majesty of God. And God's law says, the wages of sin is death. That's what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. The day that thou eatest thereof, of that tree, thou shalt surely die. And the idea is not because the tree had some poisonous fruit. The point God was making was, disobedience to the Holy One merits eternal death. Sin is an infinite offense. There's no way you make amends for that. There's no way to pay God back for that. 
satisfying for our own sin is a human impossibility. As the catechism says earlier, all we do is daily increase our debt. And thus, the word of God in Nahum 1 verse 3 is a terrifying word to sinners unless they have a Savior. Nahum 1 verse 3 says that God will not at all acquit the wicked. Man is doomed, and justly so, unless he has a Savior. A Savior who can do something for him. And this is the something that must be done for him. Satisfaction, the catechism says. And that is a very, very important theological concept woven throughout the Bible. Satisfaction for sin. What is it? Put very simply, satisfaction is payment. Payment for sin. Payment that is made by suffering the punishment that sin deserves. Payment that is made by serving the sentence that God's law prescribes for sin. Death. Eternal death. That's what hell is. Payment of all that the law requires. Remember, the law doesn't just pronounce a curse upon the disobedient. But the law requires wholehearted devotion and obedience to God. And thus, for one to make satisfaction, the one who makes satisfaction must bear the penalty of God's law, serve the sentence of God's law, while at the same time perfectly obeying and meeting every requirement of that law. You can't do that. I can't do that. No mere human can do that. Not even an angel can do that. There's only one who can do that. The one who is both God and man. One person. Fully God. Fully man. The God provided Savior Jesus Christ. He makes satisfaction for our sins. That's what he was doing when he lived and walked among us. His whole life long, he suffered. He was bearing the holy wrath of God against your sins and against my sins. And that culminated on the cross where he paid for our sins and in full. Jesus took responsibility for our sins and for the sins of all of his elect. That means... He who was sinless in himself transferred your guilt to him. He took the liability to suffer the law's punishment from you and placed it upon himself. Jesus stood before the tribunal of God. He stood before the law as the guilty one. Though he had no guilt of his own, he stood as the one representing all of his people. He stood as the one who took their guilt upon himself and took upon himself the obligation to pay. And that was the cross. On the cross, the sentence of the law, death, eternal death, fell upon Christ. And in that time on the cross, as our Lord Jesus died, hell in all its fury 
beat against him. And he suffered it. And he bore it for you to bear your guilt away, to cover your sins with his precious blood, to deliver you from the sentence that your sins merited. By making satisfaction, he did perfectly. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, satisfaction accomplished. Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect satisfaction for our sin. And this is what has merited and obtained for us the blessing of forgiveness. It's the spoil of Christ's victory on the cross. God remembered your sins against Christ. Therefore, he will not remember your sins against you. God looked at Christ in light of your sins. Therefore, he looks at you in light of Christ's obedience. God dealt with Christ according to your iniquities. And therefore, he now deals with you according to Christ's righteousness. God punished your sins in full in Christ Upon the tree of the cross. And therefore he will never punish you with destroying wrath. But will reward you with the blessings that Christ himself merited. We're saved by works. But not our own. The work of Christ. Forgiveness is merited for us by works. But not our own. Christ's work upon the cross. That's how forgiveness is obtained. That's how such a blessing can come to you and me, lowly creatures and sinners. Christ. And that's the certainty of it then. The forgiveness of our sins is as certain as the foundation upon which it rests. The judicial basis And that basis is Christ's perfect work. Christ has earned forgiveness for you, beloved. And that means it would be an injustice to Christ should you ever be deprived of that blessing. That's the rock-solid certainty that the Christian has of the forgiveness of his sins. There would be no certainty if it rested and depended upon me. But it doesn't. It rests and depends upon him. Who suffered and died for me and rose again in glorious life, confirming his victory over death and confirming that satisfaction was accomplished. Accomplished. Does your heart overflow with love? Christ. That's the response to this truth, beloved. Gratitude, joy, super abundant love towards the Savior who first loved me. 
who was willing to take hell for me. So that God could justly remember my sins no more. Robe me in righteousness. Make me his child. Give me to inherit everlasting life. A place in the Father's house. A station in the new heavens and the new earth to come. Eternal life and perfection with God. What good news. The gospel of forgiveness. Lastly, how is it applied to us? How is it applied? Here we have to understand something very important. In the preceding Lord's Days of the Catechism, we've gone through Jesus' life and ministry. And remember the two theological terms that describe Jesus' entire ministry. His state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. The state of humiliation is Jesus' earthly ministry when he came down from heaven, took upon himself our human nature, and suffered in our human nature to make payment for our sins. Jesus' state of exaltation begins with his resurrection and then his ascension, his session at the right hand of God. It is Jesus, our victorious Savior, in the state of glory, applying to us his benefits. Jesus' work didn't stop at the cross. Yes, Jesus said, it is finished. But when Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't mean that there was nothing more for him to do. It meant he had finished the work of obtaining salvation for us. In his state of humiliation, he earned, he merited, he obtained all of the blessings of salvation. But now in the state of exaltation, Jesus, from heaven... Through his Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out upon the church, Jesus applies, he imparts all of those blessings to us. He works graciously in our hearts by his Spirit to bring those blessings to us, cause us to possess them, cause us to experience and enjoy them in our life here and now. And that's what we're getting at when we Look at the question, how is forgiveness applied to us? Forgiveness, God declares, I don't remember your sins. But now that declaration of God, that legal judgment of God has to get from God's courtroom, you might say, down to me here on earth. How does God's word of forgiveness get from there to my heart? To quiet my accusing conscience. To give me peace. To comfort me each day of my earthly life. And the answer is. The ascended Christ. Applies the blessing of forgiveness. To our hearts. Through the agency of his Holy Spirit. Using the means. Of his word. The gospel. The gospel. It's the good news of forgiveness. Here is where God has written down his judgment of his people in Christ. Forgiven. Here is the good tidings of great joy. The Bible announces to all who believe in Jesus Christ. That they have forgiveness of sins in him. 
the gospel, the word of God, addresses the believing heart. And in the Bible, the very voice of God is heard saying, to use the language of Psalm 25 verse 7, I do not remember your sins against you. Through the word, God speaks personally. He addresses you by name. He knows the names of his people. As Isaiah 43 says, I do not remember your sins. I do not remember your sins of youth, nor your transgressions. But according to my mercy in Christ, I remember you. That word comes to us in the gospel. And that word then is applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who uses the word and makes it effective. The Bible doesn't work all by itself. You can go and read the Bible. But if you read it to someone whose heart is devoid of the Holy Spirit. Who is walking in unbelief. They're just going to hear it. And reject it. It's the Spirit It's the Spirit that takes the Word and causes it to penetrate the heart. It is the Spirit that awakens faith to receive that Word and to believe and to take God at His Word and to rest in that Word. The Spirit makes the Word powerful. The Spirit presses the Word upon your heart. The Spirit kindles faith Which is the means by which we receive that word. Think of what the Belgic Confession says about faith. It's the hand and mouth of the soul. Faith is our spiritual receptive organ. It is the one means God has given us by which we receive from God. It's the open hand of the soul. By faith we receive that word. that The spirit presses upon our hearts. So that we know, we are assured, what the Bible says is true for me. For me, God doesn't remember my sins for Jesus' sake. Jesus' blood covers my sins. And in Christ, I am right with God. I belong to Him, body and soul, in life and In death. I believe the forgiveness of sins. What a confession. What reason we Christians have to be joyful. What a ground we have for peace. In this life. Though my sins were as scarlet. God has made them white as snow. With the blood of Christ. Though they would drag me to hell. God in his love has sent his son to make satisfaction. And has obtained that forgiveness for me. God has shattered my shackles. God has lifted the unbearable burden of my guilt. God has taken away the punishment my sins deserve. God has clothed me in the righteousness Of Christ. There is nothing. That can ever separate me from that saving love. There is nothing. That can undo. That perfect work 
of my Savior. There is nothing that can ever cancel out that word of God in the gospel. I don't remember your sins against you. Give him thanks. Praise him, beloved, for who he is, for what he has done. This God of our salvation. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the truth of the forgiveness of sins. Press this word upon our hearts. Warm our hearts with this word. Because we readily acknowledge that every day of our lives we are wrestling against our sinful flesh. So often we are as sheep who go astray. So often we plunge ourselves back into the same dirty mire. Yet, thou dost not forsake us. Thou dost not give us over to the ruin that we would bring upon ourselves. But thy mercy is without end. Thy grace an ever-flowing stream. Thou hast given Christ, who has made satisfaction for all our sins, secured for us their forgiveness, so that every day we might hear that word, forgiven. Grant, Father, that the joy of this salvation may move us the more steadfastly to fight against our sin. To desire not to walk in it anymore, but to show forth the glory of thy grace by living a new life. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.